tried to share last week with you uh, four reasons why a little God comes to us at a huge cost. And I want to rehearse some of those this morning before I get into really a, an, a, an amazing passage of Scripture of a divine encounter that should cause us to be stunned and, and filled with awe as we look at what God did with Isaiah. But I don't know how many of you saw this week. Uh, this is just a perfect example of, of what's happening in our culture today. Um, but the church over in Europe, I think it was Finland or one of the uh, Scandinavian countries, but I don't know how many of you saw this. Uh, they just voted to not use the word Lord in reference to God uh, because it was not gender inclusive. Now, I'm trying to connect some dots here for you. Yeah, how in the world, how in the world, you know, here, here, to put this in context, God bestowed the name Lord on his risen son when his son presented his own blood that was shed for the sins of this world, and he was exalted to the Father's right hand. Philippians 2 says God gave his son Jesus a name that's above all names. It was the name Lord. It's a name that signifies that Jesus reigns supreme over everything. And for the church to have the audacity to suggest that somehow a name God uses for himself or how about when God reveals himself as father? I mean, you know, father is a gender. It is masculine. There's something about God's revealing himself as a father, as a gender, a masculine gender that is very important. Now, God is not a male. We all understand that. There are many attributes about God that are tender, compassionate, uh, attributes we would tend to attribute to being more female. God is not a male or female. God is God. He's a spirit, but he creates us male and female. And how many of you know together we display his glory in amazing ways? That's why we need men and we need women. And when our culture blends them together or tries to confuse them, God's glory is at stake and our good is at stake. So there's a lot going on here. But when something like this happens, what goes off in your heart? I'm hoping to, as we're preaching on the transcendence of God, on the bigness of God, on the greatness of God, on the majesty of God, that when you see God somehow domesticated, tamed, when, God's, when God is, has certain attributes cut off to fit our culture better so that we don't offend people or so that we somehow make God more manageable in our culture, this is exactly what I'm preaching against right now. And I hope that inside of you there's a sense of holy jealousy for God himself and holy jealousy for the church. How in the world can anybody go to a pathetic church like that that, that shapes God to fit the you know, politically correct culture in which we live? This is what I'm telling you. When we, when we have a little God, our praise gets tiny because he's not all that much worth worshiping. But when there's a big God, a glorious God, a God who we stand in awe of, he inspires our worship. And I just have to say this morning, I think I'm around some people that have an inspiration in their heart for a great big God because our worship this morning rocked in the sense that it wasn't like, oh, wasn't the, the, you know, the song selection great. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fire that's coming off the hearts of God's church. That's worship. It's not the, it's not the arrangement. It's not the who sang or that's not it. It's what's coming off of your spirit when you're in the presence of God almighty. That's worship. 
And for 8.30 service, I'm just telling you, there ain't a lot of churches meeting before 9 o'clock in the morning these days. But for 8.30 service, to feel that kind of fire coming off God's people, I, I felt like I was in the right place. I felt like I was coming into a dangerous place with a, with a big God. When in worship you feel small, you're, you know you've worshipped. When you leave and you feel big, you haven't really worshipped that well. But when you leave and you feel small and God's big, you were at the right place. See, we need a big God for big praise. We need a big God to live holy lives. Because when your God is just like a, a celestial version of Grandpa Cratchit, I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to justify a lot of garbage in your life. And I just got to say this. The worst thing we can do, the worst thing the devil can do to us is dull us through compromise and sin and mar the image of God that wants to come off of our lives and, and dull our effectiveness to be the prophetic voice of Jesus in this earth today. I'm not talking about, amen. I'm not talking about holiness as a list of do's and don'ts. I'm talking about you and I reflecting the beauty and the greatness of Jesus. See, everybody know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about how short your hair is, how long your dress. I'm not, those things vanish when people get consumed by the glory of God. I'm talking about a people that want to be different. And in this age when everybody's trying to dumb down God and everybody's trying to mock holiness and mock sexual purity, you know what? It's starting to get driven home now when we see all the perversion and wickedness and all the stupidity in our culture today that's rejected God. It's starting to hit home now. I think we're getting ready for a display of the glory of God. And it's only going to be displayed. He's only going to be displayed through his church. That's how he displays his greatness. It's through us. So if we got a puny little God that's, that's worthless then we're going to be compromising in our integrity and in our purity before the Lord. God forbid. His, I'm just telling you, his bride is worth more than that. He, he is deserving of more than that from his church. Amen? He's deserving a bride that fits the greatness of who he is. And if you have a little God who's fitting into the world out there, uh, you're going to be very sloppy in your holiness. And I just pray that the fear of God, the true, genuine fear of God, grips our hearts once again with those areas in our lives where there's the tiniest bit of compromise, that the Holy Spirit grabs your heart and says, come on, there's more, there's more, there's more. We said thirdly, that if we have a little God, then we have a very little mission. And if you have a little mission, it's going to get crowded out by everything else that's so important in the world around us. I've been in a million discussions this week, and I, this is what I like to add to the end of all those discussions. In the light of eternity, in the light of eternity, how important is whatever it is that we're talking about? In the light of eternity, how important is whatever it is we're investing our time in? In the light of eternity, see, when you're aware of the greatness of God, eternity weighs heavy on you, and you begin to think differently, and the mission of God takes center stage in your life. But when God is little and his mission is insignificant, people don't make sacrifices or they consider everything too big of a sacrifice. 
But when the greatness of God is before us and the mission of God and the invitation of God is before us, how many of you know there's nothing God could ask of us that would even be considered a sacrifice? When God is big, people willingly yield their lives to him. And lastly, and this is so important, this burns in my heart this morning. When God is little, his message becomes little. And what I mean by little is the more we dumb God down to fit the stupidity of our culture, the less relevant he becomes and the more impotent he becomes by the moment. A God who cannot be called Lord because it offends somebody, a God who cannot be revealed as a father because it might offend somebody, a God who is constantly being shaped to whatever the current cultural cool thing is, is a God who's absolutely impotent because he's just like everything else. And he's just like everyone else. And there's nothing that separates this God from any other God. But when God is who he says he is and he's honored in the hearts of his people, I'm telling you, we are most relevant. You know, I'll tell you when we're most relevant. When you're standing in the, in the public arena and you're saying, thus saith the Lord, you're relevant. When you're standing in the face of perversion and you're saying, this is wicked, you're relevant. When you're declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord and Jesus Christ is true, that is when you are most relevant to a culture that is constantly trying to shrink him, domesticate him, tame him, and put him out of business. That's when we're most relevant. I'm telling you, there's so much at stake when we allow God to be domesticated and tamed and shrunken down to our puny little human size understanding of who he is. Can you fight with everything in you and join me in fighting with everything in us that we will constantly resist the temptation, the sway of this world to, to make God somehow tame? And that you'll let the word of the Lord hit you with full effect, that you'll let the, when God speaks, it will shake you to the core. And that you'll make sure that the God you worship is big inside of your own heart and that your desire is to see him big in the nations of the world. If we'll do that together, I, you know what, watch, here's what'll happen. If you'll live that way, God will show up in your life. God will back a person. He'll back every man or woman that honors him. Every man or woman that lives for him, every man or woman that lives for his glory, God will back you and he'll back the message through you and you'll see great things. You will move in the supernatural and you'll see God work on your behalf. But if you domesticate him and turn him into a little lap dog, you're going to get nothing from a God like that because that's not, that's, that's idolatry. We just made, we just made another idol. God does not respond to our idolatrous worship. I want us to stand in awe this morning. And not just be in awe, but ready to respond to God. As we focus on a passage of scripture where God is incredibly great, big, transcendent, he's, he's magnificent, he's beyond our ability even to comprehend at times when we see this. But aren't you grateful for those passages of scripture where we're able actually to get a glimpse into the throne room of God? We're able to see things that only a few people in all of human history have been privileged to see. And this morning I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 6, turn there. I want us to talk about Isaiah's great God this morning. I want to read the first four verses together. You can follow with me on the screen. It says, it was the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. Isaiah speaking here. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. And attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces 
With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And they were calling out to each other. And listen to what they're saying to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And notice verse 4. Their voices, not the voices, the voice of God, but their voices, the voices of the seraphim, shook the temple to its foundations. And the entire building was filled with smoke. In this passage, I want to give us seven quick things that Isaiah points out about the uniqueness of the greatness of God. The first thing there is in verse 1. Notice he says, I saw the Lord. Point number one, God is alive. Notice the, the juxtaposition of this verse. It starts out, it says, it says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I just have to boast on God this morning. How many of you know every world leader that's ever lived uh, at some point is going to be dead? But God is going to live forever. Every God hater that's ever shaken their fist at God in rebellion is going to die or is already dead. But God has never had a moment of even weakness in his entire existence. God is eternal. God exists from eternity past into eternity future. God will never not be God. God will never not be. God is the source and the foundation of all of life. In fact, we sang about it this morning. The breath we use to give him glory comes from his hand, comes from his life, comes from the essence of who he is. God does not give life. God is life. This is amazing. Uzziah, this mighty king, died. And in the year that he died, God gave Isaiah a vision of a God who is very much alive. I just want to tell you this morning, God is very much alive. I don't care what's going on out there. God is very much alive. God is moving his agenda forward. God hasn't changed a bit. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if we'll approach him as he is and we'll honor him for who he is, we will see what he can do because he'll demonstrate his life among us. That's the good news. God is alive. Second thing I want to point out from this passage is God could have been revealed as doing a lot of things. He could have said, in the year Uzziah died, I saw the Lord blowing kisses to planet earth. That's not what it said. I saw the Lord with his arms outstretched as if to give a giant group hug to all the inhabitants of earth. That's not what Isaiah saw. I mean, there's lots of aspects of God's greatness and character Isaiah could have seen. But when he saw, his eyes were open and he saw things as they were. I want you to see what he saw about God. He saw that God is reigning. It says he was sitting on a throne. God is seated on a throne. That means he's ruling. It means he's reigning. It means he has absolute authority. Now, I want to encourage us this morning, because sometimes when you have a little God, you live in fear and you live in anxiety and you get shaken by what's going on. You know, I want to encourage us when you're seeing, you know, what's going on at that church, for instance, somewhere over in Scandinavia or uh, Norway or wherever it is, I, I don't know. While that provokes me to righteousness, it does not provoke me to anxiety or frustration or carnal anger. Because it's a blip on the screen. It's a, it's a, 
It's a, it, it's, it's, it's a vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow. That, churches like that just signed Ichabod over their doorpost. The glory of God is departed. I, I'm not, I don't worry about all that. I don't worry that everything's going to hell in a handbasket. God is reigning on his throne. And when people are with God, they begin to carry themselves differently. What they say changes. What they worry about disappears. I'll tell you what you worry about when you serve a big God. You worry about being in right relationship with God. You worry about his presence being alive in your heart. You worry about ordering your life correctly. You, you worry about honoring him. I'm using worry in a, in, in probably the wrong sense, but I'm saying these become your agenda and your focus. Not all the stupidity around us in the world. You know, I'm reading a biography right now of Martin Luther. And when Luther nailed his 95 theses, he was basically saying, all this indulgence nonsense needs to stop. It's unbiblical. And here, and here's what was burning in his heart. It misrepresents God. And it misrepresents the church. And it's the church usurping authority that it doesn't have to pervert the true gospel. He said, show me in the Bible where this practice should even be allowed. And I'm reading about how the wicked priesthood at the time brought him in and they were speaking so glowingly and flattering, flatteringly, and they were basically trying to woo him into compromising what he knew about God so that he would recant, so that they could deal with the political fallout, kind of like what ESPN's trying to deal with right now on Sundays. Put out the fire. Thank God for men like Martin Luther. There was not a, there was not a bone in his body that was even thinking about recanting unless somebody could show him in the word of God where he was wrong. At that point, he would say, yes, I'm wrong, and he would change and repent. But until he could see it in God's word, he was not budging. Thank God for a church that won't budge. Thank God for a church that understands God is for us. Thank God for a church that's not, listen to me, God in us can conquer anything. We are a super majority with God. We are a super majority with God. But if we have a tiny little domesticated trinket God, we're in big trouble. But a God who reigns, a God who is lofty. Notice the next point here. This God is omnipotent. It says he's not just on a throne. He's on a lofty throne. This is a throne that is above all thrones. This is a throne that's high and lifted up, which means that his power is absolute power and his sovereignty is absolute sovereignty. You know, I was reading this week, I love to look up key words as we're trying to unpackage this, this text. And I looked up the word throne, I looked up the word reign. Listen to this, I'm just gonna, this is not in the PowerPoint, but I just wanna lay this out. Psalm 9 verse 7, the Lord reigns forever. Psalm 45 verse 6, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. Psalm 47 verse 8, God reigns above the nations, sitting on his holy throne. Ah, I'm reading these verses. My heart is getting excited because I'm with him. You with me? I'm with that God. Check this out. Psalm 99 verse 1. The Lord is king. Let the nations tremble. The Lord is king. Let the nations tremble. Shake, let the nations quake, let the nations tremble. He sits on his throne between the cherubim. Let the whole earth quake. 
That's the God we worship. Isaiah 46, 10. God says, everything I plan will come to pass. For I do whatever I wish. I'm with him. How about you? Well, maybe we should change your name, God, because the Lord is a little strong. No, I ain't going to that church. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the God we're approaching. That God should cause us to quake. Before Before we're ready to climb on his lap, please quake before the presence of the great king who reigns forever and ever and ever and ever and ever without end. That is our king who does whatever he pleases and nobody stops his hand. Ah, these verses got to stir our hearts, especially in this dark hour in which we find ourselves today. It's apostate hour. Point number four, God is magnificent. The Bible says the train of God's robe filled the temple. You know, I remember when my glorious wife became my bride the day she, we were married. She was looking like all glorious brides look, although she was my bride, so she looked all the more glorious. You all can relate to that. But as we got ready for pictures, she stood on the stage and they took her, the train of her, her robe, her gown. They spread it all out. It was huge. She was there in all of her glory. Snap, snap, snap. All the flowers laid at her feet. The Bible says God's glory was so great that the train of his robe filled, I'm paraphrasing, filled the entire church so nobody could come into the wedding. And you'd be going, God, isn't that a little bit overkill? But God goes, no. I am majestic in splendor. I am glorious in all my ways. You know, I came across this amazing study. Listen to this. There was in 2010, after a decade of work, 3,000 researchers and scientists were working for a decade to produce the first census of marine life. They wanted to, they wanted to categorize all marine life. So for 10 years, 3,000 researchers and scientists studied everything that they could under the sea. This is what they came up with. The researchers discovered 6,000 new species, bringing the total number of known marine species to 250,000. Now, I just want to pause right there. Most of us don't like putting our heads underwater. But God gets glory out of all that's taking place in every body of water, including all the oceans of the world. Every day, there's 250,000 different species just that we have been able to categorize. They just found 6,000 new ones. Why does all that exist? I, I don't know about you. I haven't seen hardly any of it. But guess what? God didn't make it for me. He made it for his glory. Check this out. Highlights from the study range from the bizarre to the beautiful. 600-year-old tube worms. Listen to this. Herring that swim in formations as large as Manhattan. A yeti crab with long, downy claws. A jellyfish with a Darth Vader-like helmet. Another jellyfish that uses lights to scream for help. One of the leaders for the project said this. Now notice, these are are ungodly people for the most part. 
God deniers, they think all this happened by accident, but they're encountering beauty. They're encountering majesty. And listen to the language that they use because they don't have the right language, but they're straining for the right language. What, they're, what they should be doing is worshiping. Listen to what they said. Life astonished us. Can I just pause there? What a stupid statement. Life. Where'd the life come from, you moron? You're worshiping life. What the heck is that? Who created it? What is life? Who's the author of life? Where's the intelligence come to create 250,000 different species? And you just found 6,000 new ones, you genius. You should be worshiping. Life astonished us everywhere we looked. The discoveries of new species and habitats both advanced science and inspired artists with their extraordinary beauty. Can I ask you something? How do we even have an appetite for beauty? What is beauty? And why do we appreciate it? And how in the world did beauty evolve from dirt and chemicals? Just some good questions. All right. Another scientist who participated in the research effused, this is, effused is another word for worship. The most surprising thing was the beauty. Listen to this. Our eyes were popping out of their heads. Our eyes were popping out of our heads. This is just seeing a glimpse of some underwater sea creatures in a fallen world that's groaning for redemption. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to be in the immediate presence of God Almighty in a universe that has been completely restored from the full effects of sin? Can you imagine the eye-popping beauty that's going to be all around us? This is what my plea is to you. Will you please try to imagine the eye-popping beauty? Will you please meditate on that which is to come? Because if you'll think for a minute on these things, it will change the way you live today and tomorrow and the next day. Because you'll start to get excited about what's coming and you'll realize right now on the most beautiful spot on planet earth, you're living in a slum. If eye-popping beauty in an ocean that's polluted in a world that's fallen could cause ungodly scientists to be in awe, how much more should God's people be in awe of his greatness and glory and look forward to what is coming? It's going to be eye-popping, shall we say. Point number five. God is honored. The Bible says attending him, surrounding him, were mighty seraphim. Six wings, two wings. Check this out. Two wings, they covered their faces. And two wings, they covered their feet. And with the other two wings, they flew. These are living beings. In fact, Pastor Dick loves to point this out. This is one of his favorite areas. The seraphim were called the fiery burning ones. We sing that hymn, we are your burning ones, talking about the fire of God and the Holy Spirit that should be within us. These beings are majestic and powerful angelic beings. When they speak, the entire foundation of the temple shakes and quakes. These are just angels. But the seraphim are glorious creatures in their own right. And they are nothing, I'm sorry, but they are nothing without the presence of God. They must cover their eyes from the splendor of his majesty. And I want you to see, these are not fallen angels. These are good angels. They're untainted 
by human sin. But they have to cover themselves in humility. The picture here is one of total humility. These are perfect beings living in the presence of a perfect God. Declaring his holiness. And they have to have six wings to function. Two to cover their faces. So that they cannot look upon the full glory of God. Two to cover their feet in humility. And two to move at his bidding in obedience. This is like sci-fi stuff to us. We've never seen that realm before. But we need to meditate on this realm. Here's the question. If sinless beings created to reflect the greatness and glory of God, who Isaiah sees are in his immediate presence, and can't even look, cover their feet. You know, I remember Tom Duchel, when he was here, saying how in Africa, when people approach a witch doctor, they don't look in the witch doctor's face because it's a sign of disrespect. They crawl. Businessmen in three-piece suits will crawl before the witch doctor on their hands and knees and will not make eye contact with the witch doctor out of respect and reverence for a demon-possessed man. How much more? How much more? Should the greatness of God bring us to our faces? I'm just crying out, God, we got to see better. We have got to see you better. We have got to understand you more deeply, God. Because a sense of the holiness of God has got to return to Christ's church. Humble, broken people are thankful people. You know the problem with our culture today? When you start at the wrong place, you end at the wrong place. If we would recognize that as sinful, broken, self-centered people, we don't deserve anything but damnation. Then we would look through life and we'd realize every gift we have is precious and undeserved. Everything we have is precious and absolutely undeserved. It would change everything about the way we operated. What does it mean? To be honored. It means that we come before God and we recognize the greatness of who he is. We watch our mouths. We're still. We know that he's God. The Bible says in Psalm 89, the highest angelic powers stand in awe of God. How awesome is that? Very quickly here, point number six, God is holy. They're crying out to him, holy, holy, holy. This word holy, I want you to get it this morning. The word holy means to be set apart from what is common. It means you're not, you're not secular, you're sacred, set apart to God. And that which has been set apart has been devoted. And the things that are devoted become holy. How is it that we're holy? All it means is that we've been set apart for God and for his purposes. It means that the righteousness of Christ has been put on our account. It means when God looks at us now, he doesn't see us. He sees Christ in us. He's the basis for our righteousness. But I want to ask you this question. If God is holy... What has God been set apart from? What is it that sets God apart? Let me give you the answer, and the answer is profound. The reason God is holy is because God is set apart from everything else in the created realm. 
God is completely set apart from all of his creation. He's completely uh, separate, distinct. The Bible says he's one of a kind. He's, he's, he stands alone. Nothing can compare to God. Isaiah 40 says this, To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Ask the Holy One. The reason God is holy is because he's not like us in any way, shape, or form. He's completely separate and unique and distinct from everything and everyone else. That's what makes him holy. Let me ask you another question. To what is God devoted to? Think about that question. If Dick Baxter receives or has received the call of God on his life, then we say, you know what, you're, you're, now you consecrate yourself. Well, what does consecrate mean? It means set your life apart. You're not like everybody else. You don't do the, the things everybody else does. Your calling's different. Your message is different. Consecrate yourself. What does that mean? Set yourself apart from what's common and ordinary. I remember one time I was challenging the youth group and one gal came up to me and she says, will you quit saying all that stuff? I just want to be like everyone else. I'm like, you're not like everyone else, honey. You're saved. You're set apart. God has a calling on your life. Don't try to be like everyone else. Set yourself apart. You're different. I'm asking this question. What is God set apart to? What is God devoted to? The answer is going to blow your mind. God is devoted to himself and to his glory and to the display of his pleasure and greatness. What is God committed to? God. I thought he was focusing on me. Nope. I thought he was focusing on saving the world. That's the overflow of the display of his glory. The fact that he would save sinners displays his goodness and his mercy for eternity. But the focus isn't on sinners. The focus is on the greatness of God. The focus is on how awesome God is. And God is the, re- the, re- the reason God's like God is because he's not like you and me. You can't live for your glory. You'd be an idolater. You can't live for yourself. You'd be prideful and arrogant. But God lives for his glory because if he lived for anything else, he wouldn't be God. And whatever he lived for would now be God. Does that make sense to everybody? God lives for his glory. The connection is you and I should live for his glory. God lives for his pleasure. The connection is this. You and I should live for God's pleasure. Let me wrap it up with this. I want the worship team to come up because we're going to worship our way out of here today. Number seven. God is glorious. The Bible says the whole earth is filled with his glory. Now listen, this is important. God's holiness means he's perfect in every way. It's the beauty and the perfection of his divine character. When we say God is glorious, again, I'll bring it back to my wife. If I look at my wife on our wedding day and there she is in all of her glory, what am I referring to? My wife, if I say my wife is glorious, what I'm saying is when I look upon her and her beauty, her eyes, her lips, her nose, her hair, her dress, who she is, the the reflection of her character, her goodness, her kindness, her mercy, her love. That's what makes a bride glorious. God's glory is the sum total of all of his perfections. And when you look upon the glory of God, you see that he is supremely beautiful in every way. Now check this out. His holiness 
I'm sorry, his glory is his holiness put on display for us to see. Listen to Leviticus 10, verse 3. God says, I will display my holiness through those who come near me. I will display my glory before all the people. The holiness of God is his concealed glory. The glory of God is his revealed holiness. Isn't that awesome? God is glorious. And I want you to see, and this is what, this is our response this morning. And I, this is not some program thing. This is not some religious thing. Please don't turn it into that. All right. I can't think of a more fitting response to a great God than worship and glad surrender. Notice I didn't say just surrender. I said glad surrender. I said surrender with a smile on your face. I said surrender that says from the every cell in my being, every breath that I have, the deepest core of who I am, God, I live for you and I want to live for you and I want to live for your glory. It's glad surrender. Notice what happens here. When Isaiah saw this vision, he ran to his pastor and said, I have a vision to share with the whole church congregation. No, he didn't say that. He said this, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips. I live among a people with filthy lips. I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Notice when we come into the presence of God, two things, conviction of our sin and a willingness to repent and turn from our sin. Then comes forgiveness and restoration. And look what happens next in verse 8. Actually, verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it, and he said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. How many of you know those are the two things every one of us in this room needs today, to know that our guilt has been removed by God, and that our sins, which are many, have been forgiven by the Lord. And I want you to notice this. When your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven, you enter into a relationship with God. Because look what happened to Isaiah. He says, then I heard the Lord. Then I heard the Lord. You know, I have people come up to me and say, Pastor, I have a hard time hearing the Lord. Maybe your God's too small. Maybe you need a fresh revelation of him. How many of you know God wants to speak to us? As soon as Isaiah got his heart right, He said, then I heard the Lord saying, and here's what God said, who do we send as a messenger to the people? Who will go for us? And then look what happened next. Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Isaiah was unclean. He needed cleansing and forgiveness, but I want you to see the glad surrender. Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. You know, this year's winding down. I believe God's setting us up for a great harvest in America. I don't believe he's done with us. I believe he's judging us right now. He's allowing our skirts to be lifted literally and figuratively in this country. He's revealing the ugliness of sin and perversion. How many of you know it's time for us with all that we are, all that we have, to yield ourselves to Jesus? It is our reasonable service is what the Bible calls it. But it's not just surrender. Sometimes we sing that good old song, I surrender all, I surrender all. It's famous altar call and people get up and they come down and they have a momentary time of surrender. I'm not talking about singing I surrender all 14 times until finally somebody gets up and moves. I am talking about this. 
Is there anybody out there besides me whose heart is just burning with a desire to just say, God, I belong to you from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. Every breath in my being, I belong to you. I give myself to you. I exist for you. I don't want my life to be wasted, God. It's your expression of your glory through me. I don't want to waste the time that I have here. God, I want to max out your purposes for my life. Here I am. Send me. Whatever you want to do, Lord, I belong to you. And you're doing it with a sense of incredible joy. Because you know you're getting ready to, to embark on something here that's really, really exciting. That's what I'm talking about. Here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to stand to our feet this morning, and I want our worship team to lead us in some of the songs of worship today. And uh, if you need prayer, I want you to come on down. But here, here's the deal. I'm going to do this in waves. There might be some of you that have never, ever surrendered your life to Christ. And I want to give you the opportunity first to get out of your chair there, walk down the aisle. We're going to have our leadership team up here and just tell somebody, you know what? I have never truly given myself to Christ, but I'm going to do that today. For the rest of us, this is just about, you know, fresh kisses, fresh embrace, fresh sense of yieldedness. And I want to encourage you, if any of you have grown sluggish with sin in your life, shake it off. Those hidden areas of your heart Deal with it. Let God speak to you. And how many of you know God doesn't speak to us once? There are fresh assignments. There are fresh calls. There are are fresh moves. There are fresh voice of the Lord speaking in our heart and for fresh times. Some of you need to put away the shame and the guilt. And you need to step out of that wet blanket that's been on your life. And realize the greatness of God is bigger than the failures of our past. But we're going to worship Him. And I've asked Julia and the team to lead us in this song of praise and and let's just let's just let it all out all right let's just with all the joy and thanksgiving in our heart let's praise god because he's worthy let's lift up our voices now and sing and worship him hallelujah